welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. Today we're going to continue our examination of famous philosophers by looking at Immanuel Kant. Kant was a man who thought about and contributed to many subfields of both philosophy and science. He was the first person to teach geography as its own subject, identifying how winds stem from the Coriolis effect. He also postulated that the solar system was born from a nebula, that the Milky Way was a disk of stars, and that the moon's gravity would slow the Earth's rotation, resulting in tidal locking. Believe it or not, these aren't even the things that he's known for. <laughs> so Kant's an interesting guy. Oh, yeah. um, and we've, you know, we did a, a show on he- you know, Hegel and it was the same thing. And really a lot of these philosophers are like nothing will make you feel more humble than looking up the lives of some of these famous philosophers, because what you see again and again is um, what flies in the face of stereotypes, you know, rather than these guys who are just sitting in dusty libraries with overstuffed armchairs. And they've got the painting of them old and sitting there staring out at you. And uh, yeah, 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 just just thinking and not really doing anything. All of a sudden you find out. Yeah, no, like, uh, this guy was the wrestling champ of the world, or <laughs> this guy invented geography, you know, like, all this different kind of stuff. Yeah. They're always much more interesting characters, and in a lot of cases, they're, you can see that they're all, they're going out and they're applying a lot of the knowledge that they're thinking about to real-world activities. They're, and, they're, and, and, and you hit it, they're, they're human, they're people, and... And and I've I've been in situations with with students and with and with acquaintances who as soon as they find out something wrong or limiting about the philosopher they say see he didn't know anything because he was thinking think about your own life have you ever not done something that's uh, antithetical to what you think you you believe and and here's a, a man who I I particularly I've I've I've, I've appreciated Kant for a long time but I've, I've particularly find affinity with him on some things would we have ever been friends i probably wouldn't have been able to stand in the same circle with him but i but we could have been he he's a he's he taught he uh, had a full-time teaching position at age 46 or 47 something like that but interestingly he had sort of the life of a community college teacher in the sense that he wasn't hired to teach philosophy exclusively or sometimes even primarily, as you say, he's teaching uh, geology. He was teaching mineralogy. He was teaching. So he's handed us all the rain. And he had he had twenty hours of student contact a week, and then all of the other work that goes along with it. And he had essentially been an adjunct before that. We don't call it that back then. Um, he had a, a person, uh, Lampe, who was his uh, servant. That's not the right word. He he lived with him. He was he was Butler doesn't work. It was but he was and he but he was very rigid in some of the things about his life. You wake up at five. You go to bed at ten. Hmm. And if and if and if he was out with a friend and that violated that, and you get home like ten after ten, then he'd just be apoplectic because all of the the pattern had been shifted. And yet he loved to play pool. He loved to drink with his friends. He had one meal a day, a huge, huge luncheon they would invite friends to that he would they would have after the morning classes. 
then do it uh, the, the the teaching work in the afternoon some writing at night he would go for a uh, out or go for a walk or whatever and then 10 o'clock he wrote, you know, he wrote a little pamphlet on uh, about physical health but it's what we call a polymath somebody who knows a little about a lot and quite a lot about a lot yeah. <laughs> uh, and that and that makes him so human he you look at him and he he could have been he, he would look fragile small slender man intense blue eyes apparently but a great sense of humor and so as soon as you saw the eyes and he started playing poolies and you found out he's really good then you know all of those human elements you take it back to what he wrote and you say this was a really realized person yeah he really is a fascinating guy and he's he is a good example of that complexity you know where we so often just try to portray people as being two-dimensional you know mm-hmm. and so it's easy to say oh well yeah the neighbors said that they, they could set their their watches by his schedule and he never married so you know he was probably just a sourpuss or whatever no he's a super social guy and everybody liked him and you know like but yeah just different you know you can't predict what somebody's whole life is by looking at one aspect all the different aspects are going to be um you know different um so do you want to cover any more biographical information about him before we dive in? Or Only we should situate him in the historical context. He was born in 1724, and he died in 1804. So uh, when the American Revolution happened, he was um, he was middle-aged. Well, we would call middle-aged. Uh, he only got seven hours of sleep a night, but he lived until he, you know, he lived a long time. Uh, and and so the f- great foment of the Enlightenment age, with all of the collisions of, of of ideas, and the idea of rationality be so very important. That that's really where he was living. Yeah, and we'll see as we start talking that that's that's important. You know, there was a lot of thinkers that came before him, and um, you know, the philosophical thought of the time was kind of heading in one one direction, and in his view, starting to stagnate. Yeah. And um, what he came in and did to the field, kind of really sent it off in several directions, some of them that he didn't even agree with. Um, but it, it really was kind of um, a turning point in philosophical thought. Yeah, he was, he was at, uh, a number of people remark about this. Uh, uh, I remember my philosophy teachers said something about this too, that he was sort of the focal point, the lens. Well, you, you and I, before the show, were just experiencing uh, VR <laughs> and, and the black hole. Well, he's, all the philosophical thought before him sort of filtered into him he shook it up, and then he essentially had an effect, as you say, in many fields that was refiltered through him. So it was kind of a glass, the light's going through, and he's resetting what philosophy is about. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about light is anytime you put it through a lens, it bends. You know, there's no <laughs> linear um, exit there. So, um, yeah, he really changed, you know, a lot of things about philosophical thought. Yeah. So, what are some of those things? What does he. What is he known for? The categorical imperative, the idea that uh, if you're going to have a backup, he, he was primarily known for thinking really hard about epistemology, which we've talked about, which is how you know things, ethics, um, what might I, ought I, or should, should I think about doing, and metaphysics, uh, which is what's out there and what's my role in all of this 
uh, but the categorical imperative in the ethics uh, part is often what's referred to with him, which is as much as to say, essentially, uh, if you're going to establish or, or, or discover a moral law, that it needs to reach the level of being able, you ought to consider it as something that should apply to everyone, regardless of class, status. He, 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 he was uh, early in his life, what we would call not a, not a, he was a racist mm -hmm. in many ways, uh, by our terms. By the end of his work, he was arguing that uh, slavery was abhorrent, that people needed to be treated equally, and so on. So he made a shift in his life, which is a positive thing. But but in any in any case, the idea of the categorical imperative, whether he lived it, it doesn't matter whether a philosopher lived it absolutely well, because nobody's perfect in a human. But the idea that you want to try to establish rules for somebody else, it must not limit somebody else's uh, freedom as long as it doesn't hurt you. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, his, his entire um, experience with race is, is again, it's a, an example of the complexity of human beings, right? Because like you said, early on in his, in his life, he, he was a racist, and by the end, he had changed. Um, I'm really glad that he didn't get canceled early on, right? Uh, yeah. Because he didn't, he didn't, you know, participate in some of his greater work until middle age, late uh, middle uh, age. Right. He was trying to, essentially, uh, in some way, we were trying to find what his place was, what his what his work was. What he, mm -hmm. the other thing he's he's uh, known very well for is his, it's called transcendental idealism. And and boiled down, what that that means is the recognition. His view is that because we are human and we have human perception, and we've talked about perception and so on before, that it is impossible to see what's really there because of the limits of our, our senses and our preconceived ideas, which we can, we can break out of some of the preconceived ideas if we work hard at it. But nonetheless, we can only know the phenomena that we encounter. Hmm. Yeah, and that's some of the really cool stuff that's, that's sort of mind-maddening that we'll get into. Yeah. Um, I like what, what you said earlier, talking about you know, what he was interested in. I got a, you know, the quote from him, which he says, you know, thus the entire armament of reason is in the undertaking that one can call pure philosophy is in fact directed only at the three problems that have been mentioned, yeah. God, the soul, and freedom, right? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, he, you know, those, like you were talking about, those things that he's known for, um, that really was his, his focus. What can I know? What should I do? And how, for, how and for what may I hope? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's just yeah, it so seems simple, but it's not right. <laughs> and these are all concepts that we've we've talked about in the past. Um, so, in a way, a lot of our philosophy podcast is um, based off of work that Kant did. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've talked about a priori and a posteriori, and um, we haven't talked about analytic versus synthetic. Um, no, now so much, but um, not in those terms. But you know, and right the concepts and things. So can you explain 
what Kant's views on on the nature of reality were? What what were his thoughts considering these big questions? That we can well to start that we that we the only things that we can know are the things that we determine based on our perceptions, and we know that people have different perceptions. Uh, you know, if, you know, we know so much more now about perception than we did. We still don't know that much, but we we know so. So I don't, I don't know what Kant would have said about, for instance, to say on that topic, uh, hearing color, hmm. you know, synesthesia, uh, 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 tasting color, something or sound. Um, I, I think that he would have said, "You see, there's how things are." He wouldn't have been the mechanistic, uh, neurocognitive kind of philosopher that we have now. He. he I think it would have been anathema to him to say, oh, it's all just because of the electrical sparks in our brain. Yeah. Right? yeah. That there is, for him, there was a, a noumenal world or a noumenal world, which is the entirety of reality outside of us. And then the limitations of what we can know inside, which, which means we can, we can come to know some things perhaps we're never going to be able to answer lots of the questions that we ask. But the human condition for him was, you can't escape that. If you're fully functioning and fully alive, you are driven to ask the questions and you're not going to be able to get the answers, but you're going to keep seeking. Yeah, which, I mean, everything that you just said, it was kind of controversial at the time because like we had talked about in early on, you know, philosophical thought was kind of heading in one direction um, empiricists and things. And, and, you know, David Hume was kind of the culmination of that, where it was saying, listen, we can't know anything. Like maybe, you know, maybe there isn't really, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe I, you know, and basically Kant was like, I, I don't believe that. Right. I, you know, there has to be, um, something we have to be able to know something. Right. So how do you say you can be able to know something and then prove it. And we've run into this problem on the show, right? <laughs> Thinking about, you know, knowledge like, man, wow, can you really know uh, can, anything? Can you man, know, I don't can know. Can you prove it? And, you know, all the difficulties that go along with that. Causality. And, Causality. Yeah. You talked about David Hume. David Hume blew Kant's mind. Uh, <laughs> Hume was 30, 20 years older than, than Kant. But, but Hume essentially, among all the things that he said, said uh, causality really doesn't work uh, you just because something happens doesn't mean you know that that's why it happened so to speak and it blew Kant's mind and he was he was grateful to Hume because it just made him shook him up and, and think about it all again so here's an example I was thinking about it when I was coming over here today this is a marvelous uh great blue heron that was flying off of Silver Lake. It was over a farmer's field. It was heading toward two trees. I lost sight of it. And I pulled off the side of the road. I watched this and it was grand. You're supposed to make a wish on it. If you make a wish on a flying blue heron, it's supposed to come true. But Khan would say, hey, prove that. <laughs> right? uh, but anyway, and so I would, my first thought was, well, it just flew off the lake and it went and landed in a tree. Do I know that? Of course I don't know that. It may have flown off some farmer's pond, not silverly. I didn't see it lift off the water. I didn't see it land in the tree. I saw it disappear between two trees and might have continued flying. 
So it's probable that the heron came off the lake because there's a heron rookery on the lake at one end of it. I've seen them. I've, I've been among them in the past kayaking. So I know that I have seen that. And from that, I could then say, well, it's a puddle of a lake. It's beautiful, but it's not that big. So if some herons flying around, it's probably coming from there. I really don't know where it went. My my mind was seeking closure. It started here, it ends there. Well, no. (laughs) So anyway, Khan would have us think about that and say, well, okay, so probably it came from here. Yes, you don't know where it went. Uh, But you know something. Maybe. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, and that's where he was was a little bit um, different, was, um, you know, we're getting into the the a priori and the a posteriori uh-huh. knowledge, which is that, you know, a posteriori requires an experience in order for something to, in order to have knowledge about something, right? So, right. you know, I have these, so you experienced seeing the herring, yes. right? Once the herring's out of sight, anything that the herring does out of sight is no longer an a posteriori experience. Right. And then we've talked about this in the past. If a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? <laughs> it's a ridiculous question, right? Well, not really, not because really. if you're not there to hear it, you can't say that it makes a sound. Now, of course, um, we have a scientific instrument that can pick it up. Um, but at that point, is is that a posteriori or is that a prior? <laughs> <laughs> at that point, are you having a posteriori? An, having, are you you're having an experience of hearing the tree, but it's through a technological media? That you weren't there, you weren't directly there. So, and suppose the the speaker broke, or somehow the computer's on mute, and you don't hear that. Oh my gosh, the tree didn't fall, or it didn't make a noise when it fell. Well, yeah, unmute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's a demonstration of that the fragility there, and mm-hmm. for something to be um, a posteriori knowledge, it it really has to follow a pretty strict um, criteria, um, and so kind of the philosophers of the time, uh, a, a priori knowledge wasn't really in vogue when Kant said, no, you know what? You can know some things without having a direct experience of them. Mm-hmm. You may is, not be absolute, right. but you can know them. Which is when Kant started blowing other philosophers' yeah. minds. <laughs> <laughs> and he also asserted the, the necessity of time and space. Some mm-hmm. philosophers were questioning that. And, and of course, now in metaphysical terms, uh, quantum physicists and so on, we, we have a lot of questions about time and space. But that was part of what uh, Kant thought you, you need. Uh, uh, just, again, picturing what we're doing. I'm here in this studio. I see the microphone in front of me. I see you. I notice that you have a different haircut. I see all kinds of items around. My, my, I hear things in the background uh, that aren't necessarily to do anything with, with the podcast. I, and we get all these sensations. And Kant essentially said we would be paralyzed with the constant bombardment of senses unless we had some kind of organizing principle. And the organizing principle is the assertion of that I-ness, capital I, uh, that in in time and space decides how to put all those pieces together and prioritize them. Yeah, and so it's wild because 
like we just talked about, Kant was sort of the lens, you know, that took the philosophy that was happening and bent it and then reflected, you know, in a different way, refracted it in, a, you know, in a different way. And I feel like where we're at currently in time is the point where that light is going to get put through another lens. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the things that he sort of postulated about, if, you know, a quarter of a century ago, we'd still be looking at them and thinking, wow, you know, that's an amazing insight for that time. And I'm not saying that it's not anymore. But what I'm saying is that what's happened in the past quarter of a century or so has started to erode some of those things that were the great insights of that time. Mm -hmm. And that idea, um, you know, space and time, right? He says space and time are, are necessities, right? They're not, they're not a posterior knowledge. They're what is required to even have experience as a structure. That's a incredible insight for that time. And I mean, you think about space and time, he's talking about them in the same breath, which is something that, you know, Einstein would look at 150 years later. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And so his his ability to rationalize things, you know, the Milky Way is a disk of stars. He had no way of knowing that. Hey, the nebula that we see through the telescope, those might also be clumps of stars. The solar system formed out of a a clump of gas. All of these things, you know, the moon's going to tidally lock the earth, all this stuff, right? I mean, the guy was a shining example of the a priori knowledge he was trying to espouse. Yeah. He did an excellent job of rationalizing these these Not things. For nothing was he called the sage of Königsberg. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he was amazing, and I don't mean to downplay no, that at all. But he would also embrace exactly what you're saying. He wouldn't have, uh, you know. I don't. I don't know him except through. Do I know Kant? <laughs> no. I know of him. Mm-hmm. I can experience his writing through translation. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, <laughs> this is a thought exercise right here, right? We have yeah. no a posteriori knowledge of him because we never met the man himself. Mm-hmm. And our a priori knowledge is limited because we can read his works, but we cannot know the thing in itself that was Kant. So we can look at his words, but we don't know the meaning behind them because we weren't Kant. And there's a lot of arguments oh, about yeah what he did mean when he was talking Back and about forth, the- defensive arguments, supportive arguments. Yes. And that's why I say, I, Kant, I think, doesn't matter what I think, but I think that Kant would have said, yeah, good, move forward. Mm-hmm. You, know, <laughs> you got all this knowledge we didn't have or seeming knowledge that we didn't have? Good. What are you going to do with it? Because he had said, this is that other thing that was uh, he's known for. Uh, I'll, I'll destroy the Latin, but it's uh, sapere ade. A term which means you must exercise your reason. Uh, he, he, he was saying that that's really the first principle. If far too many people let other people tell them what they're supposed to think. Church, books, other people who seem to have more force in their lives than themselves. And you cannot know without putting firsthand your your reason into active mode uh, and thinking it through. Mm-hmm. I think it's more important for today than ever. <laughs> yeah, and really where he um you know he put that into practice or where where it was most relevant was in his um his discussions of of morality where which we'll get to. Yeah. yeah. Um but what I was what I wanted to talk about before we got there was just 
you know, he was an amazing guy. He did all this stuff. He had a lot of insight, mm-hmm. but it almost seems to me like he is the philosophical equivalent of Isaac Newton, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Where all of these amazing insights about how things work he had um but there's there is something beyond him that you know that is is sort of changing things and we you and i've talked about it before um how we have you know there's there's postulations that the universe is a is a hologram right Mm -hmm. so what happens to his philosophy if if space and time isn't necessarily real or, you know, having the, um, the experience of I, you know, conscious, you know, consciousness in order to, um, integrate perception and experience to come to an a priori knowledge. Um, you know, I, I saw an article this week and the headline of it was, is it time to give up the idea of consciousness as the ghost in the machine? Right. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. Science and philosophy, like I said, I we're not there yet, I don't think. Um, but I think we are getting to that point. The light is starting to focus down where there's going to be something that sort of breaks our Newtonian mechanics and we enter into um a relativistic, you know, relativity yeah. or quantum realm. Quantum philosophy. How about that? Quantum philosophy. I like that. Uh, you cool. know, I, I think that that, you know, with all the talk of the writing about the discussion of the idea that we're drawing closer to the singularity, the singularity being the moment when artificial intelligence concatenates, um, wakes up, that all of the technology and science give birth to that which is other even though these have been tools of us. There's been endless science fiction to explore that. But that's what I would call quantum philosophy. Yeah. You are going to encounter, or quite probably will encounter, we will be encountering something that we have made that is totally not us and quite possibly much better than we are at some things. And what do we do with that? And how does that change our role and in it? That and is- even though that's, you know, that's sort of the next level, you know, that's that's what is beyond. Kantian philosophy still has a lot to say about that sort of thing, right? <laughs> um, because, you know, talking again about the thing in itself and the a priori knowledge and, and filtering perception through um experience in order to know things all of those sort of concepts can be applied to an artificial intelligence or like we were talking about before the show we were talking about my my one cat so the you know if i'm on the other side of a screen door the cat will hiss at me because he doesn't recognize me if i'm inside he loves me you know just all he wants to do is be petted but if i'm on the other side of a screen he suddenly doesn't know who i am and he wants to hiss at me but if i show the cat his reflection in a mirror, I can hold him right up and he can touch his own reflection and things and he doesn't react at all. So what's going on inside the cat's head? We'll never know because <laughs> because we are a human. Right. He's the thing in himself in itself and we are not. And we talked I talked about it a, a few weeks ago, I think. Um I watched a special on eyes, eyeballs, right? And the expert there, they gave visual visualizations of what it looked like through the eyes of other animals. And of course, he prefaced it by saying repeatedly. He didn't just say it one time; it was repeatedly. This is, you know, maybe what the physical um, perception of looking through the thing's eyes would be. 
but how that thing takes the light and integrates it in its brain and comes to use that information we have no way of knowing there you are and that's and that's that's where again kant is timely he says we cannot step outside of our human perspective to 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 see what lies beyond it or outside of it well we talked about perspective once too right you can you can do what you just described we can imitate or extrapolate how the eye works functions and therefore what the animal would see the perspective is how it sees it in the course of all the other experiences that it has had. And no, we, we, we can't know that. Yeah. <laughs> we can imitate it. We can do VR. We, we can, which is amazing. And, and, you know, it's, it's another, Kant actually used the word matrix, by the way, but that's, that's but <laughs> I, I think he would have enjoyed that film. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we can, we can, we can, fool ourselves, so to speak. And then we get into, as we've talked about uh, once upon a time, about whether we're having a real experience. If I'm in VR and I'm picking up a lightsaber and defending myself, am I really picking up a lightsaber and defending myself? If I'm sitting outside and somebody else is watching me, I've got these goggles on and I've got my uh, two controllers and I'm moving them around. I'm not really doing it. And yet, in my head, I'm really doing it and so wow <laughs> yeah and you know that obviously plays into the whole the whole hologram theory right if we can create such you know a <laughs> realistic experience with our limited capabilities yeah. you know yeah. what's in the outside universe you know that can that can uh, can create such things for us that are the embodiment of our experience right mm -hmm. and so that all that stuff is is real interesting because it seems sort of ridiculous, right? Well, I have this rich inner life, so n it's not—it's not fake. It's not an algorithm or a, you know, and some other thing. Like this is this is real life. This is me. But when we talk about AI, right, the singularity, and you know, Kant's thing within itself, and how perception integrates into per perspective, mm -hmm. if we are to create it. We are almost to the point where we could create an AI that has experiences. And again, we the question is, well, if we can create that, who knows what is... What else might right. have been, yeah. We know that our science points to the fact that the universe is probably finite. There's probably something outside of it. There might be multiple universes. There might be all kinds of different things. So we don't know, right? Yeah. And... Uh, now uh, that's a huge metaphysical thing, so we might as well transition to what what Kant thought about <laughs> that, right? So some people like to kind of, um, I guess, disparage him as being uh, a Christian philosopher, but he really wasn't. Um, he was he was pretty agnostic, and basically what he was saying was, "Hey, we have all the experiences." There's absolutely no way of empirically proving that there's God, but there's, if that's your first step with anything, you, you're trying to empirically prove something. Mm -hmm. If you can't do that, the next thing you try to do is empirically disprove it. If you can't do either one, then you can't fault somebody for believing in God because morality is filtered through the perspective of the person. So they're not wrong for believing, right? Yeah. 
up up and, and and that's what allowed him to consider the categorical imperative and put it to the test with people are you going to do a thou shalt not all right you want that to be universal yes thou shalt not kill make it universal can it be universal yeah if nobody ever shoots anybody else again in wartime in peacetime self-defense time no you shall not kill that would be a universal principle right but and there are all sorts of mitigating circumstances yeah right? yeah it creates uh, like and he, you know like we talked about his reason the the reasoning behind these things so thou shall not kill right that sounds like an excellent commandment yeah. we should never kill another person and well, you know, it doesn't then, even say that another person. It just says, thou shalt not kill. Period. So if you didn't, life wouldn't exist because you have to kill plants even to live. You can't eat. Yeah, you <laughs> you can't eat if you don't kill. That, yeah, <laughs> and that, and that's, what, that's what the Jains, J-A-I-N, that, that yeah, religious yeah. group. Keep going. Yeah, Jainism <laughs> is is a fascinating philosophy. Yeah, cool. And, you know, I want listeners to know we're going to we're going to explore some of this stuff in the future. I know, you know, we've looked at Heigl and now we've looked at Kant. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, European philosophers. We're familiar with them. A lot of our thought is based on them, but I, I definitely want to explore um, Eastern, African, and all kinds of different philosophies yes, and philosophers yes. in the future. Um, you know, and, and women philosophers, all this different kind of stuff. So we'll get there eventually. Um, but, man, where was I? Okay, thou shall not kill, right? So even if we take it in the narrow sense of thou shall not kill another person, you can start out with all the good you know, yeah, okay, so now there's no war. Oh, good, right? Right, great, okay. But then you do get into these other difficult scenarios. Well, what if somebody is is suffering? What about um, abortion? What about, what about our pets? So, no, that's not human, but... Yeah, but... Why don't we apply one principle here and another principle there? Yeah, and my friend was saying this the other day, right? My my friend has a brother who's a, who's a huge hunter, right? Mm-hmm. Loves hunting things. When they were younger, during a raccoon hunt, um, they're hunting for raccoons, right? They found a raccoon that had been hit in the road and had two baby raccoons. And they raised the baby raccoons. <laughs> right? Yep, so, yep. I mean, in that case, you're applying these different differential behaviors to the same species. And, you know, that what I looked at it as is, that's evolution and work, right? Babies are meant to be cute so that they are taken care of, right? Yeah, even animal babies. <laughs> but rationally, you think about yeah. these are going to grow up to be something that you want to hunt, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, What's going on there? Yeah. And, and do you need to hunt it? Mm-hmm. Or do you just do it because you want to? And, and, and because Kant also, it wasn't simplistic. And so we, like, there's the, the cla- uh, well, it's kind of the classic, the, the, the axe murderer thing. The axe murderer is coming after a person. The person runs into your house. In some versions of this thought experiment, the person's a friend, some not. Runs in, hides. He's after me. Don't tell him I'm here. Person comes to the door. Is this person here? Well, if your categorical imperative is you cannot lie, then you throw your friend under the bus, or worse. Uh, but Kant also 
uh, made it very clear that when you are encountering a variety of problems at once, then you sift through what is the priority of your ethics. But at the same time, you have to accept that you're violating ethics, even by the decision that you're making. So yes, I will not put my friend under the bus. So I am, in fact, lying. That is something that has made me flawed and human and less than capable of achieving the goal. And that needs to be recognized. Why? To keep us humble. So we're not proud of the fact. <laughs> even and, and, and that's, I think, where people don't want to go. Yeah. They want to be really sure, and that was right, and it's always right. They got to be careful about that. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's that's basically it, right? Is that people want to think of ethics and morality as black and white, and they are simply not. You know, um, every mm -hmm. single decision, you know, has some sort of ethical upside and downside. <laughs> and, you know, our example of thou shall not kill is, is great, right? Because we're all going to kill. We're all going to kill on a regular basis. But within that, there's an ethical, there's, there's a range of ethical issues, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a vegetarian and though, you know, depending on what your, your views are, that's much more ethical than killing and eating a person, right? <laughs> or a different animal. There's a range, you know, there's sort of this hierarchy, right? Thank you, Clarice. <laughs> yeah. So, so now in Kant's philosophy, where is the authority for that coming from? It's, is it from the person? That's really interesting because he, I think he would say it's, it's from the person, but only the mature person. And by maturity, he meant the capacity to think for yourself. Do you think for yourself what's right at that moment in that situation, according to a structure of things that are right and not right? Hmm. Uh, because if you assert that there are moral laws beyond yourself, then you have to come to terms with them in your own behavior, unless you're being lazy. And that's what he would say is the immature person. I just do it because somebody else told me that. I do not. No, if you wrestle with it, and no matter how fast the wrestling might be, light speed thought, then you're actively mature and, and acting according to a, a, a natural moral law that is beyond us. Yeah, and we've talked about this in the past, right? Um, you know, thou shalt not kill. Hey, hey, do you think do you think it's wrong to kill? Yes. Well, that, that's lazy, right? You have to think about what it means to kill. We yes. the episode we the last episode we did talking yes. about belonging, right? I did that. My friend said, "Yeah, you know, I think happiness is a feeling of belonging." I said, "No, <laughs> it's not. You you can be happy without belonging." But then you know you start thinking about it rationally. You start going back. You start well, yeah, I guess you know if there was no belonging, you know mm -hmm. there there is a direct effect if you follow it all the way through the reasoning to to the beginning now once you're at, at the end of it you know and you're looking at it once you have the the preconditions met there might be a case where you can be happy without belonging but if you take it all the way back to the beginning there had to be some sense of belonging in order for there to be happiness well this is Kant speaks to this by the way That's, he doesn't call it belonging but he calls it a social dissociability or asociability uh, he essentially asserts that most human beings just really want to spend more of their time by themselves. <laughs> but they realize that they probably wouldn't survive without that. And so there have to be associations and, and dependencies and interactions 
And so that's the, the structural sociability that is required to maintain the individual. But he acknowledged that it's not simple. That so essentially, I think in some ways he didn't use the terms, of course, because they weren't they weren't there yet. But the, we're talking about introversion and extroversion. We're talking about uh, the, the idea of the total individual versus the necessity of of the social structure, and that again takes active thought to work out. That's just because some politicians are. This is what you should do. Believe in me because I am me, and therefore you do this because I would do this. Not lazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Doesn't count. Or, nor nor does, well, I've read it in a book and therefore it's so. All right. Well, I'm one of those book learned people. <laughs> it's yeah. been my whole life. But do I just parrot things because and say, well, that's it because X said that? No. It's interesting because X said that. What do I think about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Because a book can dictate something to you the same way that, you know, any anybody else can so uh-huh. yeah there has to be that there has to be other things met right there has to be reasoning used okay who is the source of this knowledge where did they obtain it what methods did they use to obtain it how do i rectify that with other things that i can know through a priori or a posteriori methods you know there has to be some work put in in order for <laughs> exactly so yeah, so it's it's kind of an interesting thing to say, right? Because it it sounds a bit relativistic to say, well, your morality or, or ethics really depends on how mature an individual is. Because you know, we tend to think of this um this concept of morality or ethics as being um something greater than the individual something right. that is out there that we're trying to discover unsocial, rather than something we are creating your unsocial sociability this that which so Kant is building on the idea of the the social contract what do i have to give up in order to be part of the social and and again this is this is timely because if you uh, have two groups that are adamant that they aren't going to give up anything by gods. <laughs> We're not going to compromise. We're not going to. Well, good. We're actually going to finish ourselves off. Then let's just mm-hmm. the, the, you the, you you give things up. That's part of the that's part of daily life. And most people would say that. But then they get to a place where they say, nope, 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 not giving that, not giving that. Oh, really? Why? What is it that should or shouldn't be, and how come, and, and, and? And that's what we try to, that's what one tries to do, not to tell people, you must be philosophers. Well, you already are, if mm-hmm. you're thinking. And we've said this before, but does this not deserve some thought is really what we want to plant in people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Philosophy, you know, it's not this thing that's disembodied from everyday life, you know? It's it's not something that you and I are just sitting and doing here in this room for an hour on on a Saturday, right? It's something that everybody does all the time as long as they're thinking about these bigger topics. But Kant would say, you have to think about them. <laughs> you can't just. You are required you know, to, right. if you, if yes, you you can't just go along with the flow. <laughs> so, Kant believed morality and, and aesthetic judgment could kind of be achieved through reason. Do you do you agree with that? 
Do you think you can reason your way into having an understanding of morality or ethics? Or aesthetics? I do. Uh, I, 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 I probably not entirely, uh, but but when I when I think about what I enjoy in art, I mean, I take art lessons. I have uh, what, what do I enjoy making? Why do I enjoy that? And there are many reasons. What 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 do I find those little glints of beauty or the sublime, which aren't the same? We know that. And 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 can I work out from my own? art what i think is a sense of the aesthetic well that's a start but my own art isn't the be all end all and this is the other thing Khan said you're not the only person in the universe essentially right <laughs> wake up snap out of it think about so can we can we look at things that across time people have called beautiful in an aesthetic sense well what what did they what was the aesthetic set of principles in the 1700s and the 1800s and the 1900s? Have some of those changed? Yes. Why might they have changed? Do do they still adhere for oneself now? Do they seem to adhere for the social uh, collective now? That's a lot of thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's a lot of engagement. It doesn't mean you're going to have the answers. It means you're. Oh, well, why do I find that? Yeah, art. <laughs> yeah, it's a fascinating question, and I think that. You know, and in order to answer, you would have to divorce um, morality from aesthetic, right? Yeah. Because I think that achieving um, a sense of morality, moral judgment through reasoning is different from establishing aesthetic judgment through reasoning. I, I, we've I we've talked about morality a little bit. No. Aesthetics, man, that's it's hard because for me, what I'm thinking of is. Um, well, it was a couple things, right? I just I did a painting this week. I noticed and, your palette um, was washed up. I knew you must have done it. <laughs> what's What's funny is that so okay, I have I have this picture and I want to paint it, and I paint it, and then I it's I reach a point right where I think okay, I can't contribute anything more to this you because know I when the painting's done, be, yeah, because I I don't have the skills yet, mm-hmm. and I reach that point, and then I said, you know what? Maybe I'm just not being confident enough, so I'm going to continue to try to add things. And then from that point, it's about 50-50. About half the stuff I added, I think, was made the painting better, and about half of it, I think, made it worse, in my judgment. So that's interesting, right? Like, the yeah. painting, you know, I don't, I'm not completely satisfied with it because I want it to be better, but I don't have the skills. So somewhere, even though I do not possess the artistic ability to create it yeah somewhere in my brain i do know i've reasoned out what i think looks good right yes so that's interesting but then think about this and this is where it gets a little weird right okay i'm looking at your piece while you're talking about let's say you're somebody who appreciates um photorealistic painting Mm -hmm. right so wow that's incredible incredible technical skill and then you're also somebody who appreciates abstract painting, mm-hmm. which is the opposite. How do you reason? What What is the reasoning behind a, the aesthetic appreciation for both? Can you? Do you think you can sort of reason yourself into a corner that way, or how? Well, I did, there's so uh, aesthetics is. I did an honors class in aesthetics with a, a particularly. Um, vibrant student you would have liked him um, who wanted to just study aesthetics and we, we were reading uh, 
uh, foundational pieces on aesthetics across a few centuries. Okay, so let's. And then we went into the college art gallery and we, we just talked about what we were looking at. And you reason toward a set of principles for a particular school of, of art. So, so the abstract may not appeal to everyone. But if you look at a number of abstract pieces, you will probably be able to discern things that work and things that don't. And if you do, then you can say, okay, fine. Let's just say up front, it's not for me if you decide to take that position. Okay, so you're not going to necessarily be emotionally moved by it. But can you still discern what's better and what's not? And if you think that you can, there are some principles that you're, de- you're determining that by. Hmm. So you're not reasoning yourself into a corner so much uh, at all if you if you say for this category this is why categorical you know for for kind of was so important this, for this category of art what do I assert and then if you've done that for a bunch of categories then you can start looking at the the macro view and say okay what have I said about each of the oh hmm I said this here I said this here I see some universal principle emerging. Yeah, and we talked about this a few months ago. It was a pretty fascinating conversation where I, I can't remember what the episode was, but we were trying to deduce what what did make art. And essentially was is it is it just perspective? Is it just contrast? What is it? Because like you said, if you try to triangulate yeah. um regardless of cultural or human, you know humanity as a whole what elements might be aesthetically pleasing yeah. if you just look at your own personal tastes and try to tri- triangulate what is good based off of images that you like you realize there's so it, it has to come down to something very basic don't well, you think I, I, I used to but i don't <laughs> I think, well, it depends on what you mean by basic. Does it mean one principle? No. Does, does it come down to 15 or 20? If that's basic, then okay. Yeah. Well, here, Composition, here. as an example. Right? Yeah. Oh, go. You were going to say something. No, no, no. Go on. I'm, I'm going to look some numbers. Right, well, well, all right. So I'm, I'm looking at, this is where this would be nice to be able to put it uh, up on this yeah, on the yeah. screen, right? But I'm looking at your piece. I'm saying, I think what my art teacher says to me. First, she's not particularly interested in photographic realism, nor am, am I. So an impression of a human being can be quite accurate, structurally, from a perspective. But maybe I'm using uh, values of purple and green in order to render a face, because I find that emotionally true to that, that person. That's not photorealism. And yet, I am not caricaturing the face if I'm doing an impre- a fairly realistic impression of of the piece she also we've had this discussion many times she and i about the how when do you stop when's the last stroke when are you starting to overdo it you get the sense of i'm over i did this on a sketch last week i'd broken through on a sketch uh that same week I, i'd broken through with a, a pencil sketch which i then use watercolor on and, I, and then a separate pencil sketch in which I barely rendered hair, just enough to make you know that the hair was there. And didn't I, the very next thing, just HB pencils, uh, 2B pencils, and it's so heavy, it was just, I, I, I did not want to look at it again. Mm-hmm. At the moment, I thought I was getting somewhere. I pulled back and said, hey, what have you done? <laughs> and that was the instructive moment to say, okay, then don't do that again. So 
you as the artist will know when you've come to the place where it's either at the limit of your current skill or when, no, one more white streak on the top of the waves would just make it seem wrong. Mm -hmm. There is something echoing that wrong, but we don't necessarily know what that is. Yeah, and that's that's where it gets real interesting to me and where I, I'm... I see the the merits of the reasoning and the morality um, question. Mm-hmm. And the aesthetics one, I have a little bit of a harder time seeing it because I feel like there's an emotional part of aesthetics that is divorced from reasoning. Um, and the example I was gonna was gonna bring up is, yeah. Yeah. you know, like we we're talking about triangulating things that we like, right? Yeah. Looking at different paintings. So I've there are some photorealistic paintings that I like and some that I don't like. Okay. That doesn't say anything about the skill of the artist, right? They're doing things that I could not dream of, but I just I just don't like the piece. But it's their choices. Right. It's the artist's choices that somehow have led to that impression. It's the same thing with, with abstract pieces, right? There's some that I look at and I like and some that I look at and I don't like. Well, mm-hmm. one of them that I really like is the Black Square uh. by Kazmir Malevich. Mm-hmm. So... That's about as basic as you get, right? There's, mm-hmm. there's, so I think if you take that, right? Some, and this is a famous painting, so you can look a, it up. A, a lot of people, could look it up. A lot of people do like this painting. Yeah. So there is something about it that is aesthetic, but there's only it's two tone. There's just black and white. Yep. Yep. And there's yep. just one shape, a square. Mm-hmm. So the number of elements that you could use to, um associate this painting with any other painting really is very limited right very limited so from a reasoning aspect you know could i say i like the contrast yes could i say i like the shape yes but beyond that there's not much but there's an emotive element there if you look if you yes, just look at the painting if you just glance at it it's nothing special to me to me personally right this uh, my opinion is not authoritative at all then that's what I'm saying. It's, it, but if I just stare at it for a, a long time, all of a sudden I start to have this emotional connection that informs my aesthetic opinion. Yes, and Kant never said you're not going to be. People have accused him of saying, oh, you just want us to be rational about our ethical decisions. But I'm going to link this directly to what you just said. He didn't, he, he didn't say that there's no emotionality. He was saying that it, that what's required is trying to figure out to what degree your emotions are affecting your reasoning. And are they overwhelming the reasoning? Are, uh, that's different than are they contributing toward the thought. So you see this piece, you look at it long enough, now that's triggered thinking. <laughs> You're thinking about why I don't like this. Mm-hmm. And that, well, I guess I recognize that I don't like this. So I'm having this emotional response, but you've still got, you've got the cognitive going on. He was saying that Kant's aesthetics, essentially, when he wrote about aesthetics, over weight simplifying, but it's just saying it's not all that different than moral judgment in the sense that you're looking for a universal principle. And if you can't find the universal principle, then what's getting in the way of that? Yeah, and okay, and that's a keen insight because you know I I have thought about this. So 
there's the visual aspect of it, right? I, you you could say, okay, I like the contrast and I like the shape. And that's about it because that's all there is to the painting. Right? <laughs> right? But when I think about the emotional element, if I just say, well, I like it, then that's not, that's not good enough. That's not reasoning. Right. But I know why I like it. The reason that I like it is because the black and the white contrast mm-hmm. reminds me of a black hole, like we were talking about before, yep. and the event horizon. But the square shape of it is uniquely human, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you stare at it long enough, you feel like you're getting sucked into this thing, but it's not natural. Yeah. It's a man-made thing. I'm looking at it right now. It's almost just a visual um, metaphor for the singularity that we were talking about, right? Mm-hmm. You're getting sucked towards this thing, but it's not natural, and it's kind of pulling you in. And that's the kind of stuff that I love thinking about and philosophizing about normally. And this very simplistic painting represents that visually to me. That might not have been the artist's intent or whatever. But so there is a rationalization behind the emotive connection as well as the visual. So I guess that in that sort of way. Yeah, you've, you know, got, you've hit it. You've, you've, you're doing it. So that informs my aesthetic reasoning for enjoying a, a piece of art. And you said nothing about all the cracks inside of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you look really, I mean, if you bring, I just, I just, I brought it up again because I know she, she and I have talked about this before. If you bring up this piece, there is a universe of values of light mm-hmm. in it that from which you can free associate shapes. I just looked and I saw Winnie the Pooh's heffalope. Oh, now I'm looking, I'm seeing a gazelle. Now, wait a minute. Where's the light coming from in order to make that? So light, some light is appearing somewhere within that black frame in order to make this. Yeah, and it's reminiscent of um, fractal geometry, of the shape of the universe, of neurons in the human brain. There's all these the different things. Yes. Right? So this very, very simplistic piece of art triggers all of these connections to when, other things that you experience. When you settle, when you consider it, when you don't just I hate it. Next. Yeah. Oh, that, which is not the mature view. Okay, let's let's engage with this. And of course, people being people who say, I don't want to engage. <laughs> All right. But if that's the standard response to most everything, then you are exactly what you just, you're disengaged. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're flying along at cruise control. Uh, so, the, so a side question, even though I'm free associating here, what I, I would ask somebody who's, I don't want to engage. I don't want to engage in anything. Good. Tell me what it's like to be in the car, which you must because of your, your consistency's sake. Uh, you'll buy a fully automated car. You'll sit and you'll just be disengaged and let the car do the work. I would never let a car do my work for me. Oh, well, why is that? I don't trust it. Oh, but you trust your mind to be disengaged? Yeah. The car is probably going to be a better driver than you in some ways. Okay, so but you won't trust that. I I don't want to. I don't want to go there either with a car. Full disclosure, but we but constant look for consistency. Hmm. How dare you say it's just fine to be disengaged and be on cruise control and then say no? I I don't I don't want to be disengaged. You, you can't have it both ways all the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That man. That was a really good. That was a good discussion. So. I guess the last part we'll, we'll tie it up with is um, Kant thought that world peace could be achieved through uh, democratic globalism, kind mm-hmm. of, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a reasonable thing to think, <laughs> especially given today's context? 
among many things that he was talking about, he suggested that that uh, he was one of the first people who suggested, without saying it as directly, people think it's a 20th century thing, but it's not that, that he had to observe the democracies. He was just at the beginning of this idea, right? But but essentially, democracies don't fight with each other to the death. Hmm. Why is that? Well, back to this unsocial sociability. There are things that we think that we want or that we need. Uh, if the culture is fixated on providing you things that you want and need and letting you make choices, uh, and, 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 and choice being the most important thing of all, then it's likely that you're going to have a growth of those kind of systems that would then settle the planet down. Um, but it requires a maturity <laughs> that, that would, would not let you be asleep at the wheel when you're, when you're doing this. Yeah. And, this is there's a lot of um, there's a lot of human complexity in this issue as well, right? Because oh, yeah, that's a big statement, right? World peace can you know, and I think that in some ways it does ignore cultural factors, right? Um, and how some societies operate. But I also think that um, you know it's we've talked about this in the past. Mm-hmm. Is pure democracy the perfect form of government? Probably not, right? Because Democracy hands decision making into the hands of the majority. Well, let's say the hands of the majority are not mature individuals, right? People who haven't reflected and, and thought about things. All of a sudden, your society is being guided um, in not the most efficacious or beneficial manner. True, but I'd rather have that than what. We're at so many tipping points. Hmm. I'd rather have that than theocracy. Because theocracies are what have led to a lot of major conflicts that we have, not we have experienced, but that have been experienced, and that are being experienced now. And that the founders, flawed as they were, of of varying degrees of 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 race, systemic race intent. Still had the idea, and this is what Kant would applaud. Still had the idea that everyone could be equal. If you, but that would require using the word "everyone" and sticking with it, which is our challenge now. But they also had the sense to say, "Nope, religion shouldn't be ruling government." And we see that being thrown away this week. We see that being thrown away in so many ways. So if you have a group of people who say, "Well, my religion is going to," dominate the values of this entire culture, then you've said, okay, I'm not interested in democracy anymore. I want a theocracy. And then someone might, how dare you say that? That's not what I'm saying. Well, tell me what a theocracy is. What, what is it that you're trying to do? Are you trying to assert that your principles should govern everybody? To, to, the, to the removal of choice about many things for them. So let's think about this then. If you have a pure democracy, but the majority of your country is made up of a certain religious group and they vote for these principles, mm-hmm. then you it's almost you end up in this you have the same ends with different means, correct? You you, you could uh, unless 
you have checks and balances. Unless you have a judiciary that will not make decisions based on theocratic notions. We used to have that. It's going away. And, and so if a judiciary will assert the values of one group, then you've lost perspective, then you've lost balance, and then things spiral. We're getting into like a super fascinating discussion about politics <laughs> and government, are, we, and we, it <laughs> should be its own show. <laughs> so I'm, I'm we, backing up. Yeah, we should. We know we should definitely do that at some point, but I know that we're we're just not going to have the time to get into it. No. But I mean, it's something that that I've thrown out in the past episodes talking about perfect forms of, of government and things. And yes. this is a question that's been thought about by philosophers for a long time, mm -hmm. right? Is um, a, a meritocracy, right? If you have a government that is, you have a representative element, but you also have people who are put into positions of policymaking who are the most qualified to fulfill those positions. Because, I tell you what I'm thinking of long term and looking at the big picture, you see our, our global warming and our, our population issues and things, right? The problem with democracy, which we don't have, we have a representative republic, but even if we had a democracy, the, the issue would be the same, right? Is our democracy is so married to unbridled capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. That if you let people make decisions about their needs and wants, right? Those 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 two terms the short term yeah. right then we're going you can just deplete resources at whatever rate is possible you know the, because your system is married to the idea of continual growth at some point i think that there has to be a reasonable voice saying okay the job of the government is to provide for your needs and you're going to need to find ways to fulfill your wants outside of material um, yeah. <laughs> material possessions right believe what you will believe guess what you can you can you can feel fulfilled and supply your wants without going out and buying stuff you know mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know if you had people in policy making positions in government who were in the best position to determine what the resources are that are available what the policy directives could be. And then you had a representative element that could provide the voice of the people, the, you know, the majority of people as well. You know, in my very un, um, you know, I, have, I haven't thought about this deeply, right. You know, but I've thought about it. You're in the, the process. Of, I mean, yeah, I'm in no, the process of it right now. So I'm sure that there's flaws. There's things that are going to be wrong about it, but you know, whenever we talk about democracy and, and espouse the values of democracy, like like kind of, kind of was right this mm -hmm. democratic globalism mm -hmm. there's always something in there that to me that says eh, I, I don't know and i know that's a dangerous thing to say i'm not espousing communism or you know well, any it's, of these it's, other it's, things it's, it's not dangerous no it is not dangerous to say that's where i will counter you uh, as friend to friend and as talker to talker when we say something is dangerous to say we've already removed the choice to talk about it <laughs> It is not dangerous to talk about. You're saying, I'm not going to assert that communism is better, but it's not a dangerous thing to 
think about to understand what it means. And, and, and people way too often think they know what it means. They have not a clue. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, if you reflect on it and you look at you look at the ideals of it, it's not a bad idea in theory. Right. Hey, you know, let's treat everybody equally. And, you know, and, on, uh, you, you know, you've seen the numbers. Well, maybe you haven't. I've seen the numbers <laughs> where if if let's say the United States was to um, distribute all of its wealth equally, mm-hmm. essentially every person in the U.S. would be entitled to around $200,000 a year, right? Mm-hmm. So imagine that world, right? You know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? There's a lot that needs to be thought out about that. Mm-hmm. And communism really has not been executed in reality in in, a, well in at a, all. A, uh, no. That hasn't. primarily comes down to having a dictatorial um, but figure one, that's enforcing rules. It and does. it's hard to do it otherwise because humans have that drive to... Um, set themselves apart and to yeah. be better. It's you know that's that's part of biology. But capitalism hasn't either. Right, exactly. Yeah. There's we, we don't, don't want the, we don't we don't want the landfills near us, but we want to get rid of our garbage every week. But we don't want to take other people's garbage because that's theirs after all. They got to find some place to put it sooner or later. Yeah, <laughs> you fill the ocean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it's just that's what we say consistency. Would would you take a person in your in your family? Let's let's say and Put them in a building, let's say a warehouse, and lock the door and start a car running and make them stay in there and just breathe the car running. One car. Now, for a while, you're not going to know it, but pretty, after a while, you're going to have an, a, what are you doing? That's not safe. That's not right. But we can do it to the planet. There's not a consistency there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, man, that's that's <laughs> super interesting. When we're going to definitely do a, a show on on politics and government at some point, which will just make everybody angry, <laughs> but it'll be great. We'll have fun. This is this has been great, and we haven't even scratched the surface of Kant, which is the crazy part. But I think we did a good job, sort of sampling different ideas yeah. from his philosophy. So yeah. until next time, keep on. Talking.